Wonderful. So, as you, if you've been here for a little while, uh, you know that I'm always pretty excited to preach God's Word. I love opening up the Bible. It's probably the greatest gift to me personally that I've had in my life is the last eight, nine years of being able to be full-time and be able to study God's Word. It's a real joy. But some mornings, I just feel a little more excited about preaching God's Word. And this morning is one of those mornings. We're preaching on relational flourishing. So how about putting a target on your back and thinking about your relationships? And I'm pretty sure they're going to be tested thoroughly in the week to come. Mine was tested already about half past 12 last night or half past 11 with the mosquitoes going around and I couldn't fall asleep and I was under pressure to wake up early to pray and Kate came in late and opened the door and it squeaked and I was like, why? I'm so sorry, my babes. I did did already say that in in private. Um, But that's what we're going to be talking about, relational flourishing. So how about... We start off just by saying hello to someone sitting close to you, someone who looks new, someone who looks old. Geertin, it's so good to have you, bro. All right, come back to me, come back to me. I'm going to give you, I'm going to give you some time just now to discuss some other stuff so you can talk some more. Let me, let me interject with a little thought here, all right, as we start relational flourishing. Who finds it a little strange to sing off a screen? To sing off a screen? Anyone find it strange? All right. So Warren finds it strange over there. So I just want to, as we speak about relational flourishing, I just thought it's a moment where we can actually just as an eldership, as an eldership, speak a little bit into why we're doing this. And part of it is, actually the main part of it is around relational flourishing. And so right now we don't have enough worship leaders. So that's a good prayer. Lord, send us some more. All right. Post-COVID, most of our guys that are on our worship team left. And so we're just rebuilding, although it's like two years later, we still feel like we're rebuilding. And I'm a worship leader. And what we've seen, I've seen over years, is that worship leaders and musicians are some of the worst treated people in the church. We flog them like horses, like every Sunday, we need you, you've got to get up, you've got to, you've got to bring the anointing, you've got to bring the worship, you've got to bring the atmospheric moment, right? And those moments are beautiful, but actually for us, we value people over moments. Why do we do that? Well, because that's what God values. God values that. And I've been quite surprised at some of the unintended benefits of doing it like this. I'm never going to say, let's do it like that long term, right? But there's a few things. It feels a little bit to me like, do you know when athletes go and do high altitude training? You know, they go and they do the hard yards so that when they get down to normal sea level or whatever, they can run much faster. Some of this worship feels to me like high altitude training. Like it's hard. It's difficult singing and tech goes wrong and the, and the nice like part at the end doesn't kick in where it's supposed to. So it just feels like the song ends and it's just quiet. (laughs) And someone shouts out loudly or whatever it it might be. But actually, I think God's busy. If we can worship like this, we can worship man anyhow, right? And in some ways, this is probably more accurate to your worship in the week, in your bedroom. You don't have a wonderful band and a sensitive worship leader leading you through your quiet time. You have you know, Hillsong on CD or MP3 or whatever it is. And this is how you've got to worship. And you, you finish the one song, you're like, oh, I don't like this next one, etc., etc. And so I just want to remind us that the reason we're doing this, I want to throw a bit of a, a bigger vision, is because we care about people because God cares about people. 
All right? But come on, we also still want live worship. So we have it every other week or so. But if you are a worship leader or know a worship leader who's unhappy in another church, I'm kidding. <laughs> kidding. So good to have you here today. <laughs> All right. I want you to discuss as we start out this morning, just in small groups, people around you, won't you just ask this question, what is relational flourishing? What is relational flourishing? And let's make it a little bit more personal. So don't just ask about what is relational flourishing over there. What do you feel like when you're in a thriving relationship? What are the things you look for? All right, go for it. Have a few minutes, three minutes to talk that through. All right. Are we back there? Okay, let me cut in for let me cut in for a second. I want to give you one more thing to ask a question, all right? If you could take all of the characteristics and everything you've been talking about. This is my experience of being in a flourishing relationship. These are the characteristics I look for, etc. I want you to narrow it down in your group to one word. What is the one thing that you think will bring relational flourishing? One word. Go for it. All right, somebody throw out to me, what was the one word you ended up with? What are you, Konya? Love. Love, surely. No, trust is bad, Bates. You, you're off eldership. That's not a bad, that's not a good word. We're going <laughs> to... Honesty, yeah. That's what I was just doing with Bates. So, so you can have honesty. You can be extremely honest. But I tell you what, that relationship might die if you don't have love, right? You can have trust, but trust only flourishes where there's love. But you don't trust someone you don't love, and you don't feel loved. If you don't feel loved in return, so the big bucket word for all of this, relational flourishing, basically comes down to love. And a lot of, a lot of what I'm going to do today is, is going to ask questions about how you want to be loved and how you want to give love. Because at the end of the day, we're not having a lecture here, guys. I want to feel loved. It's a need in Paul's heart to feel loved. And I want to, in return, give love. So I'm not talking about this in some informational, theoretical sense. I want this to, to trickle down into the practice of my life and of your lives, because you are my family. You are my close community. So I need you to love me. Are you with me? So we're going to go, I forgot to tell you this earlier. Go to Matthew 22, please. First, first book of the New Testament, if you're new to the Bible. That's where we're going to base ourselves in Matthew 22. As you go there, I'll give you a tiny bit of context. So the amazing thing about this passage is that it's three days before Jesus dies. So it's either the Tuesday or the Wednesday before the Friday. I like thinking about it like that because it makes it feel very real to me in my week. Tuesday or Wednesday and I'm dying on Friday, right? This is, how, this is what Jesus is experiencing. And the Pharisees and the Sadducees, if you're new to church and you don't know who they are, they're basically like the religious leaders of the day. The Sadducees and the Pharisees keep on, chapter 21 and 22, they're questioning Jesus over and over again, trying to make him say something that they could have a legitimate reason for what they've already decided to do. If you go and read the Gospels, you'll find out that they've been plotting and planning to kill Jesus for weeks. But now, three days before his death, they're trying to trap him 
with question after question to see if they can find a legitimate reason to kill Jesus. And we pick up the story in Matthew 22 and verse 34. I think it's the third or fourth question in a row that Jesus has been asked. And it says this, when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, these are these two religious groups with his reply, they met together to question him again. One of them, an expert in religious law, don't you love them? Tried to trap him with this question. Teacher, which is the most important command in the law of Moses? Let me reframe that a little bit for you. We're in a series on flourishing right now, and we're talking about the pathways that God designed for us to walk on so that our lives could flourish. For a religious Jew, what did flourishing look like? What was his whole life bent toward? What was he desperately trying to do in order to flourish? He was trying to follow the law. He was trying to follow the letter of the law, the tiniest little piece of the law. You go and read Jesus saying, you even take your spices and take a tenth of them and tithe those. That's how worried you are about following the law. This was the way for this Jew to the flourishing life. He wanted to live a life of flourishing in some way. And so this is an incredibly important question that he's asking. He says, Jesus, of everything I'm trying to do to flourish in my life, what's the most important thing? Make sense? That's what he's asking. And this is what Jesus says to him. Jesus replied, you must love the Lord your God with all your heart. Say that with me. All your heart. Say this with me. All your soul. And say this with me. All your mind. Let's pause there. For a moment. That comes out of Deuteronomy 6, Leviticus 19. It's not new. You see it all the way through the Bible. Love the Lord your God. Have no other gods before him. He's the most important. He's the one we prioritize. We spoke about this in our spiritual flourishing some weeks ago. The priority of God. This is our, our flourishing. So how do we flourish relationally is the question we're asking this morning. And the first point I want to make, I'm just going to make five. They're quite quick. Never. Um, number one, love God completely. If you want to flourish relationally, the first place that you begin is to love God completely. When we talk about flourishing relationships, this has to be on the front end because our primary need is not to one another, it's vertical. Our primary break is a vertical break. It's that I don't know that I love God and that God loves me and that I want to follow Him. And so we spoke about this at length in our introduction, so I don't want to rehash it, but I'll just quickly help us understand that this break is the break that makes all other breaks. That's what you need to understand, that in the Garden of Eden, when Adam and Eve sinned against God, it wasn't because they ate a certain kind of fruit. It was because in their hearts they declared independence. They put a flag in the ground and said, we will rule our own lives, thank you very much. That's what happened in the Garden of Eden. In the Garden of Eden, they said, my heart will be my own. I will not submit it to you. I won't walk in your paths. I know what I need for my life. I will walk in the path that I want to walk in to make me flourish. Thank you very much. That path looks like having a nice house, having a nice salary, whatever it might be, looking for the perfect spouse and trying to make them my God. Self-governance, priority of self, me first, a breakdown of trust, how they hide and they cover themselves and they go hiding in the garden. It says, the Lord God came and walked among them in the cool of the evening. What a thought. God coming to meet you like in person. And there they are hiding. 
They no longer trust God. Break down. Now, friends, the simple question in this point of love God completely is when those things that I'm speaking about, independence, selfishness, breakdown of trust, when those things have rooted in your heart with God, against God, don't you think that will spread sideways to friendship and into your marriage, into the way you care for your children? Don't you think it's like an insidious, creeping cancer that gets hold of us and before we know it, it's spread to other parts of our body? Friends, I want to tell you, please don't dupe yourself that somehow you get this idea that your relationship with God exists in a silo outside of your relationship with one another. Your relationship with God has everything to do with your relationship with one another. Jesus replied, this is what he says, I'm reading it again, you must love the Lord your God. Do you notice that? Not this is a nice idea. Here's an alternate path. Here's a great suggestion. Here's a possible option. You must. It says it as if it really is essential to really living my life. I must love the Lord my God. Do you notice as well, it doesn't say you must know about. You must understand a lot about his Bible or about this. Or, you must love. It's a very tricky word. Very tricky. And then do you notice it says, with all, of course you notice because I made you say it, with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your soul, all of us, or there's some areas of us that are off limits to God. I love you with this part of my life, but not with that part. God, you can come in here, but not there. This is what we spoke about, spiritual flourishing, priority, God number one, in the presence of God. So, for now, on this first point, this is where I want us to agree, that in Jesus' teachings, whether you agree with them or not, that's not up for grabs yet, the place to start thinking about relational flourishing in the teachings of Jesus are with our God relationship. That's where we start. That's the horse, and the cart is how I like all of you guys, and how you like me, and how we relate. And it sounds great. All my heart, for a Christ follower, these words, I want to follow you with all my heart, I want to love you with all my heart, with all my soul, with all my mind. To me, it sounds so beautiful and it's so simple to understand right those of you who, who's been following jesus for let's say 30 years anyone here been following jesus for 30 years anyone 40 years I'm gonna do a nice auction here anyone 45 years 45 years johannes 45 years make that man an elder <laughs> i can't remember i was asking that but i'm glad i did <laughs> Let me ask you guys a question. You've been following Jesus for a long time. It's very easy to understand this. Is it easy to live? Is it easy to love the Lord your God on a day-by-day, week-by-week basis with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind? Very easy to live out. Extremely difficult. Very easy to understand. Extremely difficult to live out is the way I should say it. Number two. Number one, love God completely. Number two... This is what Jesus says. The second is equally important. Even that comment is remarkable from Jesus. Love the Lord your God with all your heart. And then he doesn't say, and just behind it, at the same level of that love, which for the Israelites hearing this, this is an incredible command. Love the Lord your God. At the same level, love each other. 
Guys, it's not a small thing. Relational breakdown in communities or in families is not a small thing. The fights that families have had over vaccines or over these silly things that have torn families, it's not a small thing. When Jesus says, akin to loving the Lord your God, the same level of loving the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind is to love others as you love yourself. He says, love your neighbor as yourself. The entire law and all the demands of the prophet are based on these two commands. Very simply, we know what this means. Would you like kindness? Would you like someone to be patient with you and you've been irritating? Then do the same. That's all it means. So simple. We're done. Let's go. If it was just knowledge-based, would you like judgment or mercy when you sin? Which one? Right? I want both. If someone sins against me, I want judgment. I'm stepping back for the lightning. <laughs> when I sin, I want mercy. I want grace. Do the same. Love like that. How you want to be loved. Love like that. What? Would you like the best for yourself? It's, it's such an age-old thing, but man, I just can't get over how hard it is not to take the biggest piece of something. <laughs> I mean, right? At the most basic level, I fail. Like the, it's just a piece of cake, for goodness sake, or whatever it is. I cut it up for my kids, and I'm like, oh, oh okay. You know? So, so do the same. So do the same. Would you ever cheat against yourself? Would you ever steal from yourself? Would you ever dishonestly fire yourself? So do the same. Guys, you don't have to think on this for long. You don't need like, you know, three days of meditation in the mountains before you realize like you, something in you starts to shout out, how in the world can I love like this? How can I do this? And then simultaneously in me, something else leaps up that goes, how in the world can I be loved like this? God put that there, guys. God put this desire that we want to be loved like this. It's a beautiful thing. And so did I already tell you my big ideas for the day? I can't remember. Here they are if I didn't. Number one, the first big idea is this. Flourishing relationships happen when I'm truly loved and when I truly love in return. If you want a basic definition for flourishing relationships, I think that's all you need. When I feel truly loved and I'm able to truly love in return, relationships will flourish. Everyone will flourish. And the second one is this. I've got two big ideas today. Flourishing relationships are simple, but not easy. It's a pretty simple statement. Number three. Number one, love God completely. Easy. Number two, love each other just like you love yourself. You've got a great example. Just do it the way you love yourself. Number three, this is where it gets a bit tricky. We need to redefine love. Love redefined. Because love is chocolate. Love is Liverpool, although not this week. If any of you follow football. Love is my pets. Love is my house. Love is my children. Love is my wife. And we use one word for this kind of catch-all thing that obviously means incredibly different things. So we need to pause and consider the kind of love this passage is talking about. And because we're talking about God's flourishing, 
How does God make us to flourish? We must ask, well, well, what does God mean when He says love? When He says love the Lord your God with all your heart, love your neighbor as yourself, what is God talking about? That's the most important question. And guys, if this, if this is such a, a deep need in our hearts, then the Bible gives us the most incredible gift as it cuts through all the cultural uh, confusion and definitions around what love is and God goes now here it is this is very clear this is what love is if that's what the Bible does and is able to do effectively then it's a phenomenal gift to us in a very very confusing landscape of trying to figure out what true love is all right just go on Instagram it's remarkable what people think true love is 1 Corinthians 13 if you've ever been to a wedding you've probably heard this text 1 Corinthians 13 and verse 4 to 7 says love is patient and kind love is not jealous or boastful or proud or rude to the cashier at spa or the petrol attendant or your wife of 30 years it does not demand its own way it is not irritable, and it keeps no record of being wronged. You always, you never. This is not in the biblical definition of love, because I don't know. I'm not keeping any record, baby. I don't know if you did this ever before. That's 1 Corinthians 13 kind of love, right? It says it does not rejoice about injustice. Think about that. Think about the person who's hurt you more than anybody else in all the world and tell me that you do not have some sort of rejoicing in your heart when you find out that they had a bad experience, dropped a dumbbell on their toe in the gym, <laughs> right? Or got like someone took away a lot of their money or something. And there's revenge in my heart. Love does not rejoice about injustice but rejoices whenever the truth wins out love never gives up never loses faith is always hopeful and endures through every circumstance friends it just look at how the the bible cuts so beautifully across the cultural definitions of love it, it doesn't take much to think about it and just think about the divorce stats in our country the divorce stats in our churches and to realize that there's a day where people stand and they say i will love you forever i will never leave you i will never and and on and on it goes and i love the latest trend of writing your own personal vows i think it's so beautiful but then we find some years later the same people who've declared this undying relational love for one another hating each other going to court against each other. And I'm not dissing you if you've had a divorce. That's not what I'm trying to do at all. I'm just trying to help us understand that the love of Jesus, the love of Christ, when it's held by two people who have a vertical relationship with God, who then let it flow out into their sideways lives and their sideways relationships is completely other to the love that we see modeled everywhere around us. The, biblical, the cultural definition of falling in and out of love. I mean, some of the most horrendous things are done in the name of finding my true love. I'm going to leave these people that I've told that I love them, 
Some of you have experienced this in your own lives, in your own families. Because I am now going with this other person who gives me true love. That's my definition of true love. And the Bible comes and just goes, rubbish. It's not it at all. Let me ask you something. Whether you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ this morning at all, don't you want to be loved like this? Whatever you believe, don't you want to be loved like this? Don't you want your relationships and people that you love to feel that you love them like this? Patiently, kindly, gently, not irritably, not keeping record after record. We have libraries of wrongs that people have done. Record keeping. Man, I, I'm longing to be loved like this. I am loved like this. You see, I think my big idea is slightly wrong. I'm going to keep using it because I, I think it's helpful. But um, flourishing relations happen, relationships happen when I'm truly loved and truly love in return. It's, a, it's, it's perfectly fine. But because truly loved has been so uh, bastardized by culture, Biblically loved is a better word. Because I have been biblically loved, I'm able to biblically love in return. That's the kind of love I'm pursuing. And if you have any questions about that, you should ask Petey, who, um, was it, was it, wasn't it the word biblical, Petey? That, so Petey over there is about to get married to Sarah, and when they were dating, they were, they were first just, what's it called again when you're just like, when you're not quite dating yet, but everyone can see you really like each other? I'm not allowed to say it. My daughter banned me from saying, from saying vibing. Apparently, I'm too old. But in that moment, there was a day at our house where PD came and Sarah was there. And it was a very beautiful moment as I witnessed this young man trying in all his godly glory to tell this woman that he thought she was great. And he said, Sarah, you are dressed very biblically. Um, so, I don't, know what he, I don't know what he meant. You can go and ask him. But what I do know, friends, is that it worked and he's marrying the woman. So yes, Petey. Yes, Petey. Go, boy. Go, man. <laughs> One of my favorite all-time relational stories. But lest we lose it in the humor, this is the love we're craving. This biblical 1 Corinthians 13 love is the love we're craving. Friends, point number four, my second to last point, is love impossible? I kind of hope and I kind of don't hope that at this point in the sermon, you're beginning to feel something of a weight of like, how in the world? How can I love like this? Verse 40, Jesus carries on in Matthew 22. He's just said, love the Lord your God, all your heart, you know it. Love your neighbor as yourself. And then Jesus says this little verse, the entire law and all the demands of the prophets are based on these two commands. I love Excel. Spreadsheets. Do you know the sum command? It's such a great command. Equal sum, bracket, put all the little things you want to add up, close brackets. Boom. No need for maths. Wasted all my life in maths class. Right? I just, all I needed was someone to teach me that one formula. Right? This is what I think of when I read this verse. Everything else, all the law 
and the prophets, if we could just do these two things, love the Lord my God with all my heart, all my soul, and all my mind, and love other people like I love myself, everything written about in the hundreds of pages in the Old Testament, as well as everything written about in the New Testament, covered. Done. Of course. Of course it does. Just think about it. It makes complete sense what Jesus is saying. Can you do any wrong to God or neighbor if you could fulfill this? If you could do this, you wouldn't do anything wrong to anyone. We'd all have you at our birthday party every time. This kind of love covers over all sin. There's no sin which is not covered over by this kind of love for God and, and for each other. And I noticed something when I was reading this, and it might be a little bit off to the side, but it says the entire law and all the demands. Some people read this, and, and that's what they get hooked up on. The law and the demands. This is, this is the people who go, rules, rules. All God does is make rules and laws and demands and ruins my fun. He stops my freedom. He spoils my enjoyment of life. I just want to ask you, really? Really? Because this sounds pretty amazing to me. This is the kind of world I want to live in, where people love God and love each other so much that they love each other like they love themselves. It doesn't sound to me like some terrible party. It sounds to me like the most wonderful, most glorious existence I could ever have to be fully loved and to fully love those around me. Anyway, that one was just a little freebie on the side. If you've struggled with like rules and law and you're so missing the heart of God, let me ask you a question. Can you love like this? Can you love? I know it feels like on your wedding day when you stand there, you, you really feel like you can. I can love you like this, baby, like, my, like the things I wrote for you. And 1 Corinthians 13, I'm going to love you like this forever. Can you love like this? Another beautiful verse to go to. Go to Romans 13 with me. Actually, it'll come up on the screen, so let's just keep going. Romans 13 and verse 8 says, Owe nothing to anybody except for your obligation to love one another. If you love your neighbor, you'll hear the same kind of thing coming through. You will fulfill. You will fulfill. <laughs> you will fulfill. The requirements of God's law, for the commandments say, you must not commit adultery, you must not murder, you must not steal, you must not covet, and on and on we could go. These and other such commandments are summed up in this one commandment, love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to others. So love, therefore, fulfills the requirement of God's law. I want to ask you again, can you love like this? I want to ask you again, isn't it simple? You understand them? You don't need a theology degree from Stellenbosch University to get what I'm trying to say this morning. But man, are they tough. When someone that you love betrays you, when someone that you love has hurt you so deeply, When someone's gone after your reputation and spread gossip all around town, even possibly true gossip, maybe you did do that thing, but they've still gone and told everyone else around town. How hard is it to love like this? When you felt abandoned by those that should have loved you the most, your mom or dad left or didn't ever leave the home but was just not there, just working. 
not just how you've been treated, but think about your own relationships. How are you doing? As Joey famously says, with 1 Corinthians 13 kind of love. How are you loving? How are your relationships? Guys, not all of these things we can sort out. I know that. We, we're living in some of that ourselves. Not between Kate and I, lest you worry. But with other relationships, there's only so much you can do and bring to a table. And then others have got to do this too. I, I get that. We live in a broken world. We live in a sinful world. One day, I'm going to stand with those same brothers and sisters and we're going to worship Jesus with all our hearts. And everything is going to be restored. But that's not right now. That's not what I'm preaching. I'm not preaching perfection. But I am asking us, how are we doing? See, my, my contention, in fact, it's not my contention, that's arrogant, it's Jesus' contention, is that this kind of love is impossible. So let's carry on in Matthew 22, and it's going to get a little confusing for about three minutes, and then it'll make hopefully perfect sense. Just stick with me. So, remember I told you Jesus is about to be killed by these Pharisees? three days time and even Jesus just takes so much time in his final week of his life to argue with these guys around about trying to bring them into the kingdom this is Jesus demonstrating love but it goes on with a really fascinating little section and it's quite it's quite easy to think that this is a separate section it goes off somewhere else right we're talking about love impossible like an impossible kind of love it says this then Jesus straight after they've spoken to him then Jesus Surrounded by the Pharisees, asks them a question. They've been questioning him, questioning, questioning, questioning. But he asks a very random question because it doesn't make sense when you first look at it. He says, what do you think about the Messiah? Whose son is he? You're like, what does that have to do with anything, Jesus? Anyway, let's carry on. So the Pharisees reply, he's the son of David. David, if you don't know, was a phenomenal king of Israel in the Old Testament who had a prophecy that there would be a king who would come through his line who would, who would rule and rule and rule. There would always be a king on David's throne. Right? And so the Pharisees reply. They say, well, we, the Messiah is the awaited one. They say the person we're waiting for is the son of David. That's who we're waiting for. Jesus responds, then why does David, speaking under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, call the Messiah, or the one to come, my Lord? If David's so great, and he's this wonderful person, now he's calling this person to come greater than him. And then he says, out of Psalm 110, For David says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at this place of honor at my right hand until I humble your enemies beneath your feet. And Jesus makes his point. He says, Since David called the Messiah my Lord, how can the Messiah be his son? And I don't get confused in all the language, because it is a little confusing. All Jesus is saying is, How can David worship other psalms he worships this one to come how can he say he's far greater than me if all he is is as the Pharisees are saying the son of David he's just in other words that phrase means we hear it today a great teacher Jesus the great example the great philosopher in their day, they were waiting for someone to overthrow the Roman kingdom. Jesus, the great warrior, not Jesus, Messiah, the great warrior, is what they were waiting for. They were waiting for a political kingdom. Jesus, the great president, the great governor, the great prime minister. This is what they were waiting for. And Jesus says, your view of who the Messiah is, is wrong. He's, David worships him. 
He's greater than what you think he is. And this is what Jesus is doing in this moment. Now, now it should come clear to you as I explain this. What Jesus is doing is he's saying, it's one thing to know, we've been talking about this, it's one thing to know the love of God and to know that you need to love fellow human beings and to know that those are the requirements or the two greatest requirements to fulfill the Mosaic law, but it's an altogether different matter to actually live them. And he's saying to these Pharisees and these Sadducees, okay, you've understood what the laws are, now how are you going to live them? Who are you waiting for that's going to help you live them? Who's the Messiah that's going to help you to fulfill these laws that you hold to so dearly? And then he goes, your view of him is way too small. A simple son of David, a simple teacher, a simple philosopher, someone to, on Instagram, say, take this path, take that path. Some Facebook guru is way too small. He's not going to help you. Might help you for a week, maybe a month, maybe five months. He's not going to help you. And Jesus is saying, what is it, Sadducees and Pharisees, that needs to happen in your life that will actually bring you to love other people with the same kind of commitment that you have to yourself? What is it that needs to happen for you to do those, that kind of Corinthians 13 love? They've been asking Jesus question after question. Now Jesus asks them a question about their own lives. Do you get what I'm saying? Jesus is saying to them, what you need is me. What you need to fulfill the law and the prophets is me. Because this is love impossible. You can't do this. You can't achieve this. Friends, what we don't realize is our desperate need for Jesus. And I think many of us, even Christ followers, we don't realize how completely wrapped up in Jesus we are. It's immediate. It doesn't say, become my son become my child, become holy. Yes, there is an element of sanctification. We all know that. But in the moment that we come to God, we are wrapped in Jesus. And God looks at Jesus and goes, everything that I have for Jesus is for you. It's a beautiful, profound, relational thought that this Messiah would come and so clothe us in himself that suddenly these two impossible commands become possible. It's a crazy thought. Jesus points to the need for a true Messiah and the impossibility of trying harder. How many of you have tried harder? How many of you have tried being better? How many of you have tried wrestling your heart that doesn't want to change into a new position, into a different place on the cricket field? How many of you have tried this over and over and over again? And friends, this for me is the most wonderful, glorious, life-changing good news. Because if you're like me and you've tried and you've failed miserably again and again to live up to the standard of trying to love God with all my heart and all my soul and to love people like I love myself, then the best news I could ever receive is you can't do it. I'm going to give it to you. I'm going to help you do this. It's going to be on me. It's going to be a Messiah. Does that make sense? That stirs my heart.
Flourishing relationships are simple but not easy. Number five, and lastly, love divine. Love God completely. Love one another as you would love yourself. We're going through each of these things. Love impossible. And finally, we reach love divine. This is where it all comes together. Where do we turn? 1 John 3.16, the lesser known John 3.16. It's one of my favorite verses in the Bible. says, this is how we know what love is. Here's your definition. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. That's what it says. That's how you know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. And then it carries on and says, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. But friends, don't, you, you will, don't get that wrong. Don't get that mixed up. Don't think you're trying by loving your brothers and sisters to somehow prove to God that you're worthwhile, that he should come and rescue you, that he can save you. No, no, no. Because Jesus Christ laid down his life, showed the greatest love we could ever experience, did the most incredible relational thing we could ever do. Because of that, as we think on that, we are able to outflow from us into that order, into people around us. You should feel more loved in a Christian community than you've ever felt in your whole life. And let me ask the question, do you? Do we? This is the challenge from God's word for us today. I can only ever truly love once I have experienced true love. That's what John 1, 1 John 3.16 is saying. You will only ever be able to love each other effectively in your marriage, in your work, in your work environment, in your friendships, in, if you've understood the true love of Jesus. See, when I understand the love of the Father sending Jesus, sending Jesus to a broken world, sending Jesus to a broken Paul, when we see Jesus a true Messiah, a true rescuer, the one who turns the question on the Pharisees and says, great, how are you going to do that? Who do you think the Messiah is? When I see that I cannot earn it and I cannot lose it. Those two things. I cannot earn it and I cannot lose it. When I see that, that he does everything, and as a, as a theologian so profoundly said, the only thing that I bring to the table of salvation is the sin which makes it necessary. That's all I contribute to my salvation is the sin which made the thing necessary in the first place. When we realize that, and as I follow Jesus year after year, and these things begin like a, like, a, like a wonderful tree to grow deep into my heart, and the roots go deeper and deeper and deeper as I follow Jesus year after year. Guess what, friends? Guess what? It's impossible not to start loving God with a little bit more of my heart. It's impossible not to start loving you, Bunch, with a little bit more of my heart. I heard a story about Tim Keller this week. His wife called him up on the fact that on his off day, when he's supposed to be like off and resting, he asks his wife, asks him all the time, what do you want to do? He says, well, let's hang out with those people. Let's hang out with those people. Let's see them. His wife was like, you're supposed to be resting. And he said, yes, but somehow God, is, God has brought this love for these strange people into my heart. And I kind of want to see them. I kind of love them. It's impossible for this not to start happening in our hearts. Friend, when, when, we, when we think that God is infinitely kind to us, how can we not be kind? 
to each other. When we understand that God has been infinitely generous to us, how can we not be generous? I'm not talking about tithing. I'm talking about generous with your words. I'm talking about kind about people around you. Celebrating them over you needing your moment. And money. That's a huge part of what the Bible speaks about. When we understand God's patience, oh, how patient he is. How can I not grow in patience? And God knows, and my family know how much I need that. The trickiest one, maybe, of all is forgiveness. When we've been horribly wronged, and we see, truly see the forgiveness of God, how does that not begin to flow out to those who need our forgiveness? Without, yes, if you, yes, but if, just as Jesus has forgiven me, I'm going to forgive you. And that's not a moment thing. That often for people happens over a period of time as God works in their hearts. Friends, this is what I want to say. This is good news. This is good news. An impossible love made possible by a divine love. For me, for my relationships, and for our world, this is incredibly good news. And I want to just throw one little curveball in here because I'm sure it's in many people's mind. What about those who don't follow Jesus? Can they enjoy flourishing relationships? Absolutely yes. To a degree. To a degree. See, God's poured out common grace on the world. Do you know John 3.16 is such a profound verse. You know what it says? For God so loved the Christians. For God so loved the church. For God so loved the worthy. For God so loved the world, the whole world, that he sent his son to die. You see? And so this idea, can relationships flourish when people don't love God? Yes, they can. I see great marriages between people who don't know God at all. Some of the best bosses, unfortunately, sadly for the church, we're growing, we're learning, are those who don't know Jesus. Right? So how do we reconcile this, friends? The way we reconcile it is that they can, only, they can only live in this way in part. They live without the most important relationship of all being restored. All these relationships are just little echoes. They're just little, little snippets of, of actually it's a reflection of what this relationship is. This is right back to where I started in the very beginning. That's the primary relationship, the relationship with God himself. And their true need is only met in God. And so those people live in some flourishing, in some sense of following of what God's path could look like. But it's always with this idea of never with God himself. Their true need is never, ever met here on earth or in eternity. That's a horrible thought. I was thinking about a, a metaphor for that. And I thought about winning a lottery and deciding to surprise my parents. I win the lottery at 12, 12 o'clock and I find the first flight I can to go and get to my parents to tell them in person that I've won the lottery and I get on the plane and the plane crashes and I die with my lottery ticket and my parents never know and I never get to live in my lottery. Right? It's a little bit like that. We, we get something here. We get something of the joy just by God's common grace and God's love for the whole world that we can live in something of winning the lottery ticket. But man, that plane crashes eventually. Here or one day. All right, should we end there? It's a question. <laughs> Do we need to end where the plane crashes? I think you're right. I think you're right.
Let's read one more text before we do communion. Batesy, do you want to say something as well at the end? You can come up in a minute. I love this text in, in Philippians chapter 2, and this is where we will end. It's speaking about Jesus, but it's actually speaking about relational flourishing. Because this is how it starts. It says, is there any encouragement in Christ? I hope you're encouraged today. I hope you don't leave. I really hope you leave feeling like, wow, I see Jesus so big and it's so important. And I want to take this and, and, and push it out into all my relationships. It was really hard to do this preach because I wanted to preach about so many different aspects of relationships. So we need another whole series on that dot, dot, dot coming. So if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the spirit, any affection and sympathy, Paul says to them, complete my joy by being of the same mind. These are relational things he's speaking about. Be in unity together, friends. He says, have the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. These are relational verses, relational words. And then he says, how, how do you do that? He says, let, not, let each of you not look only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Came down. Left heaven to come down to be with us. He didn't count it as something to be leveraged against us, is the way that that's best understood. But he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. Jesus Emmanuel is what we speak about at Christmas time. Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Do we get it? Look at Jesus. He's glorious. It's not just the son of David. It's the Messiah, Savior of the world. And as we look at Jesus, we will start to love the Lord our God with all our heart and all our soul and all our mind. And we'll start to love each other like we love ourselves.